the value of chastening. Now, if you look at the top of your bulletin, it says to chasten means to correct or to discipline. That's a great definition of it. It's exactly what it means. It's like a parent who disciplines or chastens the child because they love the child and don't want the child to run loose and unrestrained through life. God always moves in the area of chastening out of love. And I think you need to hear that. God moves in chastening out of love. I was thinking about this, meditating upon it, and there came to me a picture of an airline pilot or the pilot of a ship who in mid-course has to redirect the course of that ship. You know, too, in regard to our astronauts that out there in space sometimes they have to give mid-course direction, mid-course change, so that the ship will not move into disaster zone. So it is with airliners and ships on the ocean. There are changes that need to be made. There are corrections that need to be made in order for the ship to arrive safely at its destination. That's a good way of looking, looking at the chastening of the Lord. There is value in it. There is benefit in it if we see God's love at work, God's hand in it, and not as though there was judgment or honoriness or meanness or wrath being poured out upon us. Now notice some of the verses in the Bible about it. Wherever you see a statement repeated more than once, you know that God is saying, you may miss it the first time, here it is again. So in Job 5.17 we read, Despise not thou the chastening of the Lord. Proverbs 3.11, Despise not the chastening of the Lord. When you come to the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, you will find the writer in the New Testament picking up the theme from the Old Testament book of Job. He says in chapter 12, verse 5, Despise not thou the chastening of the Lord. Then when you read the sixth and the seventh verses of Hebrews 12, you get the bigger picture. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. The picture of the word scourgeth is that of one being beat by a whip. Now it sounds harsh, it sounds rough, but it's better to be beaten than it is to be lost. It's better to be corrected than to be destroyed. And so he scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. Then he says, if ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. Not as bastards, according to the writer, but as sons. Not as one born out of wedlock, but as sons. That is the way God deals with us. And we need to see God working in our lives in that manner. That's exactly what the Bible says. Now, if you look at your bulletin, the last part of the scripture reading comes from Psalm 119. I used to wander off until you punished me. Now I closely follow all you say. I know, O Lord, that your decisions are right and that your punishment was right and did me good. We can say that as adults now about our parents. It wasn't easy to say that when we were going through the chastening process. 
But now every one of us would say, I deserved it. It was good for me. I bless my parents for the discipline that they gave me because we can say with the psalmist, it was right and it did me good. We need to say that about the chastening of the Lord. There's value in it. Where can we look today for an answer to the question of balance in the Christian life? My concern is balance. I want to live a balanced life. I want to have a balanced walk. I don't want to be topsy-turvy. I don't want to look like a drunk man walking through life. I need proper balance. Where do we get the balance? Where can we look for an answer? Some say you should always prosper. There are tapes to that effect, booklets to that effect, evangelists who say you should always prosper. They say no sickness, no poverty, no valley experiences. They say something's wrong if you have trouble in your life. Where is the balance? I'm concerned about balance. I believe we must look to our example, Jesus Christ, for the balance. Now, I want to tell you something about this message. I was going to go a totally different direction than I'm taking this morning until 9.30 last night when I sat at the graduation banquet out at Sacramento Inn. Dewey Short, the speaker at the banquet, said something that got me going. I asked for a piece of paper from Pastor Randy to my right and a pen from my wife on the left, and in a few moments I had this message. And I came early this morning to type it out. So this is as fresh as the ink on the ribbon of the typewriter. It's still wet. And I knew it was from God, and I got excited about it because whenever that has happened to me, I know God is going to do a special work in some people's lives that are here. We're on target. This is the statement that triggered the whole change in my direction. He was speaking of Jesus, and he said, He was not crucified in a cathedral between two candles, but on a garbage heap between two thieves. It came to me. Where do we look for the example of balance? Where do we turn for the other side of this coin that some are not looking at? They're looking at one side which says prosper and be in health even as your soul prospers. They are saying the prayer of faith saves the sick. You should never be sick. They are saying the windows of heaven will be open and you will receive blessing and it's blessing, blessing, blessing. That's one side of the coin. But there are two sides. And it is my responsibility to bring you the other side. Hanging on a cross on a garbage heap between two thieves wasn't easy for Jesus. It wasn't pleasant for Jesus, but it was right for Jesus. From the very foundation of the world, the great three in one had determined that he would hang on a cross between thieves to give his life a ransom for the whole world. Some believe Paul's thorn in the flesh 
was due to spiritual weakness. Why they have said Paul had not yet received the revelation that we have received. I beg to differ with you on that point. In 2 Corinthians 12, 9, is stated the fact that the Lord said to Paul, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Analyze that scripture. Paul is writing. God speaks to Paul and says, My grace is sufficient for thee in regard to the thorn in his flesh. God then says a very remarkable thing. He said to Paul, My strength is made perfect in your weakness. It will be better for you, Paul, to go on in your weakness with this thorn in the flesh and trusting in me than it would be for me to remove the thorn in your flesh and for you to trust in yourself. When Paul saw that, then he said, Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. There's the bottom line. How much of the power of Christ do we want? How much of His glory do we want manifest in us? The value of chastening is in that particular consideration. Who is the leader of this Christian religion? Jesus. Our example. So there are three things I want you to follow with me. How did he live? What did he say? And how did he die? When we have evaluated these three questions, we will know what the Bible teaches us about chastening. How did he live? He lived humbly, first of all. He said, the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. How do we live in contrast? Proudly. Proudly. We are so concerned as to how we look to the other man, the other woman, the other people. We live often the opposite of how Jesus lived. He said, I don't even have a place to lay my head. And we pour our dollars and we pour our attention in where we live when it was the least consideration of Jesus, the Son of God. It wasn't even a matter upon His mind or upon His heart. That's how He lived humbly. What a contrast to what I hear even in Christendom today. We ought to drive a Continental, a Cadillac, a Mercedes. We ought to live in a two-story mansion. We ought to be in the most affluent part of town. I wonder what Jesus thinks about that. Now, I'm not against that. If I could afford it, that's what I would do. If that's what God wanted for me, if he blessed me in that way, I would be happy to be in that position. But it it would not be the priority. 
We must walk humbly with our God, the Bible says. We must not make that our priority concern. It was not with Jesus. So we have to look at how he lived, and that's how he lived. He's our example. If he blesses us with something better, wonderful, all for it, but it cannot be the primary concern of our lives. How did he live? He lived serving. He took a towel and washed the smelly feet of the disciples. One of them argued with him, you're not going to wash my feet. Jesus said, if I don't, then you'll have no part of me. Then he submitted and said, not only my feet, but my head and my hands, all of me. Jesus got on his knee. He took a towel. He served. How do we live wanting to be served? So contrasted to the life of Jesus. Gimme, 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 gimme. These grandkids I've got, they're really something. Boy, can I learn from them. You know, you forget after 20 years or more since your own were little. So it's good that God ordained that we be grandparents. So we get the lessons again. These little beggars, they have the same name I do. And I declare they are selfish. They want, want, want. And now that they're starting to talk, I hear it coming. Mine! 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 And when the two cousins get together, they fight over a thing. Mine! You're not going to touch that! Whop! Ah! And their name is Cole! They have anointed genes! But oh, they are selfish! What lessons they have to learn. I'll never forget little Caleb. You know, he kind of loves his grandpa. My wife stopped by the house there this week by herself. I wasn't along, and she came and told me. She's a little upset because Caleb kept looking beyond her, saying, Bumpa! 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 As if to say, where's grandpa? Haven't you brought him with you? I kind of like that myself, but <laughs> she didn't like it very well. But I'll never forget the first time I had to apply a little pressure to Caleb <laughs> in the proper place for the proper reason. That lip went... <laughs> I thought his heart would break. His grandpa struck him. Oh, how much he has to learn. Why? Because we want to be served. So much unlike Jesus who came to serve. How did he live for the will of the Father? In the garden by a rock. While the disciples were asleep, he said, Not my will, but thine be done. How do we live in contrast? For the will of man. 
We think we have to keep up with the Joneses. We have to leave a certain impression. That was not the way Jesus lived. Not my will, but thine be done. And when he said it, he felt the crown of thorns on his head. He felt the nails in his hand. He felt the whip on his back, the spittle in his beard, the mocking, cruel treatment of the people. When he said, not my will, but thine be done, I am willing to be chastened that your will may be accomplished in the world. How did he live knowing his destiny? He said, I came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give my life a ransom for many. How do we live in contrast? We want somebody to give it to us all the time. Never any responsibility ourselves. He knew his destiny. His destiny was not how many plaques he could get his name on. Not how high he could climb on the social ladder, but his destiny was at the right hand of the Father. It was to reign over the nations of the world, and therefore he was able to say, I have not come to be ministered unto. I have come to minister and to give my life a ransom for many. If he is our example, then we must line up with the same desires, the same heartbeat of our leader, Jesus Christ. We forget our destiny. We forget that this world is not our home, that God's interest is not in giving us all the comforts that we think we need, but His interest is in preparing us for the bigger game, the eternal game that all of us are going to be involved in. That's his interest. We forget it. So when there's a little buffeting, we pucker up and we start to cry and we feel God is being mean with us when we ought to see in it the value of the chastening. I was thinking of it last night as I saw those graduates get introduced and the joy that there obviously is at this time in their lives. You know, it can be pretty tough for a student if you forget the joy of receiving the diploma, of graduating, of knowing you have finished the course. If you forget, you can really mess things up. The discipline comes when you remember the goal. I'm going to graduate. I'm going to get that piece of paper. I'm going to finish so that I may begin. And that's exactly the picture of the Bible for all of us. We're going to finish this course so that we can begin the next course. That's the destiny of the believer. This world is not my home. I'm forgetting those things which are behind and I'm pressing toward those things which are before. Jesus lived with his destiny in view. And we must also live that way. What did he say, secondly? Oh, he said many things. If you have one of the red-letter editions of the New Testament, you can see quickly how many things he said, but I don't have time to share all of that with you. But let's look at Matthew 16, 24 to 26 as a good beginner. Matthew 16, 24 to 26, Jesus is speaking. 
our example. He said, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. That ought to be enough right there, but he goes on for several more lines. If you're going to come after me, deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. That sounds so different than what I'm hearing in so many places these days. The other side of the coin I'm talking about now. It sounds so different than do this and you'll get all kinds of blessing. Do this and you'll have everything that you've ever wanted in this life. Jesus said, if you're going to come after me, deny yourself, take up your cross. And I don't know what your cross may be, but I know everybody will have one. Then he said, for whosoever shall save his life shall lose it. How about that? And whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. For what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Think of that. Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Jesus asks these questions of us. What shall a man give in exchange for his soul? What are you profited if you have diamonds on every finger, if you have two continentals in the driveway, and you live in the finest house in the city, and you have the best health in the world? If you lose your soul, what profit have you? That's the other side of the coin. So if we lose our perspective if we somehow get caught up in this prosperity concept or the word of faith doctrine or whatever you want to call it, let's keep a balance. The Bible says more than I will open the windows of heaven and you will prosper and be in health. It says take up your cross and follow me. It says if you're going to gain your life, you're going to have to lose it for my sake. What does bearing the cross mean? Dying to self? I mean just dying out to your own wishes and desires. What does bearing Christ's reproach mean? Crucifying the world and the flesh as we follow Him in obedience. Peter learned some lessons being with Jesus, listening to what He said. And then he records what he learned in those letters that bear his name at the back of the New Testament. 1 Peter 4.12, for example, reads, Think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened unto you. And we think it's strange when the chastening comes or the trial comes. Think it not strange, he says. Now notice the next two words. But rejoice! Oh! Rejoice! Inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when His glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. Oh, I didn't know that was in the Bible. Think it not strange concerning the fiery trial, but rejoice! You are, you are partaker, you're sharing in the sufferings of Christ, and you're to be glad with exceeding joy. And what did Paul write from a prison cell? His back bleeding, shackles on his hands and his feet, shut up in that Mamertinum prison, 
and it's dark and foreboding. It is damp and it is cold. And this man said, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say, Rejoice. What do we say? Oh, no. Dear God, have you forgotten I'm here? No, he hasn't forgotten. There is value in the chastening. It's a mid-course direction that we may not end up in rack and ruin, but we may be saved and we may inherit the blessings of the kingdom. What did he say, John 12, 24, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. Wouldn't you like that? If you're going to bring forth much fruit, what must happen? Your life must be like that corn of wheat which falls into the ground and it dies. You must die to sin, die to self, die to your own desires, die to the humanistic ways of this world, die to the materialism of this world, and you will come forth to bring forth much fruit. He that loveth his life, he went on to say, shall lose it. And he that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. That's what Jesus said. What did he say? Matthew 6.33 But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his rightness or righteousness and all these other things will be added unto you. Have you ever asked the question, what bugged Judas? What got to Judas? Why did Judas do what he did? Because of the cross. Because of what Jesus said about suffering. You see, Judas wanted a kingdom right then. He wanted to be the treasure of the kingdom. He carried the bag. But when Jesus said, I'm going to be killed, Judas bugged off. He looked for a better way, and he found a promise. Thirty pieces of silver. And Judas sold his soul for thirty cotton-picking pieces of money. And I want to say to some here today, you're selling your soul for much less. Thirty pieces of silver. A drive to be on top. And there's nothing wrong with that as long as it is in balance. As long as Matthew 6.33 is in focus. Seek first the kingdom. But when it takes you from the house of God, when it takes you from your responsibilities, when it takes you from your family, when you can no longer support the work of God, then you must come back into balance or you're going to be like a drunk man waiting for something to happen. That's what bugged Judas. And the end of the story is he brought the money and he threw it at the priests in the temple. And he went out and hanged himself. There was nothing left. You see, he forgot his destiny. He forgot what Jesus said and how Jesus lived. And it cost him everything meaningful in the world. That's why we need to see what Jesus said. And he said, what will it profit us if we gain the whole world and lose our soul? 
He said, if you're going to find your life, you're going to have to lose it. He said, you're going to have to be like a corn of wheat that falls into the ground and dies so it will not abide alone. Are you willing? There's value in it that we may come forth into that which glorifies his name. Now there's a third thing. How did he die? He died vicariously, which means he died for others. It's just another way of saying he didn't live for self, he lived for others, and he died also the same way for others. He died as a murderer, which means he forgot his own reputation. He laid aside his own glory. Philippians 2 spells it out so beautifully. He laid it all aside and died as a murderer. Was he right? Sure he was. That beautiful song Claudia sang this morning said it so well. They could not, they could not understand his words. They could not understand his life. When he was buried, they still couldn't understand it. When he rose from the dead, they could not. Why? They were moving in a total different direction. He died as a murderer, forgetting his own reputation. It didn't matter to him because he was there to please the Father. How did he die? He died alone, and sometimes you're going to have to go it alone. Maybe there's no one else that understands what you're hearing. They don't hear the beat of the drum that you're hearing. You may have to go it alone. He cried out, my God, why have you forsaken me? God the Father had to turn his back on him for a time. He died alone for you and me. Are you willing to live alone if need be for his glory? He died willingly. He said, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of myself. He didn't have to do that. He did it because he wanted to. He saw us in our need. And we must be willing to allow him to chisel on us and work on us. There's value in it in order that we may become the instrument that he sees. How did he die? He died with a purpose. He saw men coming to him and receiving forgiveness and salvation. It was for an eternal purpose. He was preparing a bride to present to the Father. He was preparing a family that would never depart, that would never be separated. He was preparing a body that would be whole. He had a purpose, and in order to fulfill the purpose, there was the chastening, there was the refining. Yes, there was the dying in order that it might come forth. Is it valuable? We sing sometimes, to be like Jesus, all I ask to be like Him. Is it a good thing to sing that? If we understand it. If we're going to sing to be like Jesus, all I ask to be like Him, all through life's journey from earth to glory, all I ask to be like Him, we better think about what I'm saying this morning. How did he live? What did he say? How did he die? To be like Jesus, all I ask to be like him. If we're going to be like him, there's going to be some valleys. There's going to be some chipping. There's going to be some sculpturing done. You always get to know God better through chastening. Did you know that? 
Someone wrote, I thank God for my thorn. I've received letters from people that have said, I thank God for my cancer. I've learned to know God through this cancer. I thank God for it. They've learned the big lesson. I thank God for my thorn. You'll always learn to know God better through chastening. I have a poem in my hand written by a dear friend in the Northwest. His name is Ross Chittam. Brother Chittam was a pastor for years. I held a revival meeting in his church years ago. He had the unfortunate experience of being in an automobile accident and was severely hurt, and he had to go for surgery on his stomach, his abdomen, and something didn't go right. We were riding in a car together one day, and he was in pain, obviously in pain. I said, Brother Ross, what, what is it like? And he said, it's just like they left a big sponge from the operating table inside of me. It's just like there's something big in there, and it just hurts, and he was always hurting and they seemed unable to resolve the problem. And at 3 o'clock in the morning on June the 30th, 1964, he wrote this little poem, In Excruciating Pain. He titled it, Count Me Not Defeated. Here's what he wrote. Count me not defeated, though I've fallen in the fray. Christ my captain, and I follow, knowing he doth lead the way. Not but triumph can await me, though the night be seared with pain. Tis a battle, but he's won it. Never is our faith in vain. Lift your eyes a little higher. Doth he count his soldiers slain? From the spot where death would claim us springs there only life again. Oft I've prayed, Lord, let me know thee in thy resurrection power. Shall we doubt he gives the answer now in this most needy hour? Vain our sight and vain our reason if we see not past the veil. Not the rent, but behold, beyond it stands a cross upon a hill. There it looked like life defeated, for death's kiss did touch his brow. But he burst its grasp asunder. He is ever living now. So rejoice. We're living with him, whether here or over there. Life eternal. He's imparted, praise God, there's only victory now. Brother Chittam wrote about wanting to know him in the fellowship of his suffering and in the power of his resurrection. Shall we doubt he gives the answer now in this most needy hour? What was he saying? Through this thorn I have found the answer to my desire. There's an everlasting kingdom for the valiant. The Bible says it comes to the violent, for the violent take it by force. I have listened to the batting averages of some of the big league ball players, and I've wondered if when their batting average was low and they were struggling, if it could be God trying to speak to them. <laughs> When I've seen the basketball scoring averages and some of them are being paid hundreds of thousands of dollars and they're not doing the job, I've often thought, is God trying to say something to those ball players? I've thought of the businessman whose profits aren't what he thought they should be. Is God trying to speak to the businessman? You see, he would rather they be saved than be at the top. I've thought of it in regard to a housewife's health or a student's grades. 
Is God trying to say something? There's something more important and valuable than the four point or everything going just well and right. God may say, you've got to learn a lesson. I'm going to redirect. I've got to bring a mid-course change here. There's value. That's the other side of the coin. My good friend Doug Weed told a story I'd never heard about Walt Disney. Back in 1928, Disney, sitting at a desk one day, came up with a rabbit. He called him Oswald the Rabbit. And he was going to make that rabbit famous. He was going to be on decals and on ballpoint pens. And those who were with Walt Disney in 1928 were not as integrous as he was. And they stole the copyright and got Oswald the Rabbit for themselves and left Walt Disney with nothing. He went through the Down syndrome, as most anybody would in such a situation, but one day it came to him. That rabbit didn't create me, I created that rabbit. Put him back to his desk and he came up with a mouse. And Doug Weed said in the airplane the other day, I was reading one of these business magazines, and there was a big picture of Mickey Mouse. $300 shoes, outfitted with elegance. And they were comparing Mickey Mouse with the greatest diamond rings in the world, $5 million diamond rings and other things of value. There was a little circle with an R in it down in the corner, which was the copyright of Mickey Mouse, and that magazine said that little stamp on that picture was worth $500 million. Just the stamp, the copyright of Mickey Mouse. I don't know what you think of Walt Disney, but my friends, there's nothing Mickey Mouse about Mickey Mouse. (laughs) A man learned a secret. And it made a better man out of him. You suppose Walt Disney later in life was ever angry with God for having Oswald the rabbit taken from his grasp? We would probably never have had Disneyland, and how would we ever survive without Disneyland? Peppermint Patty is talking to Charlie Brown, and she says, My uncle has always wanted to play the violin. Last week he went down to a music store and bought one. Then he went to a concert to watch the violinists play to see how they did it. Then he went home, picked up his new violin, and tried it himself. He couldn't play at all, she said. Then she said, Next time he goes to a concert, he says he's going to try sitting closer. <laughs> You'll never learn to play the game of life without getting closer to the author, friend. Sometimes that leads through the water, sometimes through the flood, sometimes through the fire, but always it leads through the blood. He's there. He says, I'll not leave you, I'll not forsake you. All of his actions toward us are for our good. I've got some advice for you as we close. Relax in him. Trust in him. Know that he works everything for our good. Everything. 
The chastening of the Lord is necessary and good for us. Look at those verses again. Young man, do not resent it when God chastens and corrects you, for his punishment is proof of his love. I used to wander off until you punished me. Now I closely follow all you say. That's the other side of the coin. Like it or not, it's there. And again, I say you'll never learn to play the game of life until you get real close to the author. Understand who he is, how he lived, what he said, how he died. And when the prosperity may not be as prosperous as you'd like it to be, your life will not be a shambles. You will not fall apart. You will know that God is working a greater weight of glory in your life. And you will be well. And you will bless the world. And you will someday enter into his eternal reward. He will say, well done, good and faithful servant. He was a servant. And so must we be. And the process of life is that of chastening to bring us into servanthood. Let us bow our heads as we pray together. Lord, we thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for the voice of the Spirit that has come to us today during this service. We thank you, Father, that you love us so much that there are times in life when you chasten us so that we'll be redirected, brought back on course. Now I pray for those who raise their hands. Lord, come to them very, very forcibly now. May they feel your hand in their hand. May they know there's nothing they face that cannot be resolved. And may in this moment of faith it be resolved. May they relax and go forth to serve you knowing you do everything well. For those who have raised their hands saying, I need Christ in my life, may they receive you now by faith. May their sins be forgiven. May they walk the Jesus way from this day forward and then into the kingdom of God. We ask this in our Lord's name.